Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Some people say it costs too much to be an environmentally responsible company, but we've found just the opposite. Like when we made our yogurt containers thinner, we reduced the fuel needed to ship them, which cut carbon emissions and costs. We're proud of the way we run our business and proud to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Teams of investigators from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission report good news. No injuries from nuclear accidents at any of our power plants last year. The bad news? The NRC only sends those teams out when that event or discovery could increase the likelihood of core damage or core meltdown by a factor of 10 or more. And last year, there were 15 near misses. Meltdowns and near misses, a nuclear watchdog group says our reactors are living on borrowed time. Also, the Pentagon comes under attack for defending renewable energy, and a musician sings the praises of an island nation's forests. Madagascar is known for its biodiversity and for its beautiful endemic species. And if we cut these trees, we'll have no more animals living in them. We'll have no more trees. We'll just become a desert. These stories and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. In 2007, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that carbon dioxide is a climate-changing pollutant, and the EPA could regulate it under the Clean Air Act. The EPA came up with new regulations, but backers of fossil fuels, agribusiness, and Tea Party politicians claim the EPA's new regs are costly and burdensome for companies. So they're suing in federal district court, which held two days of oral arguments last week. The case is wonky with terms like endangerment and tailoring, but lucky for us on hand is Robert Glicksman. He's a professor of environmental law at the George Washington University. And Professor Glicksman, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. It's great to be here. So this is a big deal case, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's uh, one of the more important Clean Air Act cases and indeed environmental cases to come down in quite a while. But didn't the Supreme Court already rule on this and say the EPA had the authority to come up with the rules? Yes, but it didn't mandate that EPA regulate greenhouse gas emissions from cars or define exactly how to regulate if EPA decided to do so. So the EPA came up with its rules and regulations to enforce the Clean Air Act and clean up the greenhouse gases. And that's what this court case is about, is those specific rules and regs. Yes, it's about EPA's efforts to follow through on the Supreme Court's instruction to consider whether or not greenhouse gases present endangerment to public health and welfare, and if so, to uh, control the greenhouse gas emissions that are, that are causing that problem. So are the plaintiffs arguing that, that greenhouse gases are not endangering the public health and welfare? Well, they are challenging what's known as the endangerment finding that EPA issued uh, after the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, Early in the Obama administration, EPA issued an official endangerment finding in which it concluded that the scientific evidence supported the conclusion that the emissions of greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide are indeed creating an endangerment to the public health and welfare. So do the plaintiffs have a case in this regard? You know, is the EPA science uh, not good? The courts tend to be very deferential to EPA's scientific determinations. And given that the Supreme Court has addressed at least some aspects of this case thus far, 
Uh, I would be very surprised if the plaintiffs were to prevail on their challenge to the endangerment finding. I think the court will uphold EPA's conclusion that greenhouse gas emissions are contributing to climate change in ways that present threats to the environment and the public health. Another big contentious issue is what they call the the tailoring rule. What's that? The tailoring rule is an effort by EPA to regulate factory emissions of greenhouse gases in a way that the agency thinks makes sense. Greenhouse gas emissions became subject to regulation under the Clean Air Act, and therefore EPA became obliged to require states in issuing permits to factories to regulate those emissions. The problem is you would wind up regulating an enormous number of sources, and not only factories such as uh, manufacturing plants, not only electric utilities that, that burn coal and emit carbon dioxide, but much smaller facilities, even schools, hospitals, and, and other public buildings. And they simply don't have the, the funds or the personnel to handle the crushing workload that would result. So what EPA is trying to do in the tailoring rule is to tailor or narrow the scope of the permit program so that only the largest sources are going to be controlled by this new set of regulations. So what the opponents are saying is, uh, you know, we're going to argue you into submission. If you can't uh, regulate everybody equally, then the tailoring rule ain't going to pass muster. Yes. Essentially what the industry is arguing is that EPA lacks the discretion to decide what the cutoff levels would be. So if it's going to regulate anybody, it must regulate everyone. The goal, of course, is, as I think you've implied, to wind up with EPA regulating no one. Because if EPA thinks that regulation of the multiplicity of smaller emitters is not feasible, then I think the hope on the part of the challengers is that EPA will essentially throw in the towel and decide not to regulate anybody. So what do you think the court will decide in terms of the tailoring rule? It's a close question, I think. And because the courts under the Clean Air Act have never addressed this precise question, it's impossible to predict. The real question is whether the court is going to insist upon a literal application of the meaning of the statute or accept EPA's justification that uh, it is appropriate to allow EPA to adopt modifications to the statute that make the statute feasible uh, as opposed to uh, impossible to implement. And it's possible the court could go either way on that question. When do you think the court will hand down its judgment? What's unusual about this case is that the court is holding oral argument over a series of several consecutive days, which indicates that the court regards this as a very complicated set of questions, which are related to one another. And so it may take a bit longer for the court to sort this all out than it would in a typical case. But if I were to make a wild guess, I suspect that we'll have some answer by some point this summer. Could this case go back to the Supreme Court, or is that already a done deal? I don't think there's any question that this is a case that could wind up in the Supreme Court's lap once again. We'll wait to see what the the Court of Appeals panel decides. If the court winds up split, two to one, that at least marginally increases the chance because it indicates that at least one federal judge on each side found that the opposing parties had viable arguments. Well, Professor Glixman, thank you so much. My pleasure. Robert Glixman is an environmental law professor at the George Washington University Law School.
United States Department of Defense is the largest single consumer of energy in the nation. In fact, it consumes more oil than anybody else in the world. To cut the use of fossil fuels, the military's top brass has pledged to get 25% of the Pentagon's energy from renewable sources by 2025. But now that target has come under attack by congressional Republicans, and they've set their sights on the U.S. Navy, which has the Defense Department's most ambitious energy goals. Living on Earth's Ike Shreeskandaraja reports. The Navy first got its cutting-edge fighter jet in 1980. You want a buzzing insect that can sting your enemy before he knows what has happened. That's what the U.S. Navy asked for, and that's what they got, the F.A. 18 Hornet. The Hornet became the Navy's most famous jet. It's what the Navy's Blue Angels fly at air shows. 30 years later, in 2010, the iconic fighter got an overhaul with a shot of plant fuel. They call the biodiesel burning jet the Green Hornet. Here's your Pentagon Channel report. Navy Secretary Ray Mavis watched the Green Hornet test flight. He says the Navy is committed to reducing dependence on foreign oil and safeguarding the environment. Navy Secretary Ray Mavis has charted a path for the Navy and Marine Corps to get half of their energy from biofuels and renewables by 2020. Politicians who disagree on most national energy policy issues found common ground here. But in an election year with a tough economy, the Navy's goal has become another target for Republicans in the House Armed Services Committee. Here's an exchange between Representative Mike Conaway of Texas and Secretary Mabus at a recent budget hearing. Now, if you get to 2020 and you've got to this holy grail of a 50-50 blend across your team, that means that you'll be a third more expensive for fuel than the other services. Sir, I think that your premise is absolutely wrong. Um, and well, that if I don't to, to, I disagree with that. Else. Besides the Green Hornet, the Navy has test flown two other planes on jet fuel cut with plant fuel. The service is also planning to run battleships on half a million gallons of advanced biofuel that cost $12 million, as Secretary Mabus told Congressman Conaway. Actually, sir, the additional cost there is so tiny compared to the only additional the, only cost, the, me, compared uh, to the additional uh, cost of only in the Department of Defense budget. There's not a, another budget in the face of the earth where $600 million in new money would be considered tiny. The Department of Defense is asking for $525 billion. One billion of that is for energy conservation investments. That's two and a half times more than was allocated in 2010. And with the budget increase that extreme, there's a lot of room to get it wrong. Katrina Rourke is the director of energy policy at the American Action Forum, a center-right D.C. think tank. Rourke attributes the spike to President Obama's larger energy agenda. The Department of Defense is not insulated from the politically motivated budget decisions that happen elsewhere in government. Rourke isn't opposed to investment in renewable energy, but she says she has a hard time justifying the additional costs, especially when military has to trim elsewhere. $5.1 billion in cuts, along with a $600 million increase in renewable energies, seems to really demonstrate that the Pentagon is driving on renewable energy and energy efficiency investments as a new priority that we're unfamiliar with. The priority isn't that new. In 2005, President George W. Bush first required the military to invest in renewable and alternatives under the Energy Policy Act. Within a year, the military became the nation's biggest buyer of renewable energy. In the current administration, for Deputy Assistant Secretary of Navy for Energy, Tom Hicks, it's not about party. 
my view is when folks become more aware of the progress we made, the real goals of what we're driving toward, I think it's a story that works on both sides of the aisle. I really do. That progress is already being seen with solar panels and smarter batteries in combat today. And not just any part of the theater, but the heaviest part of the fight in uh, the Sangin province in Afghanistan. And what they were able to do was to take out 25 to 90 percent of the energy in their forward operating base environment. I think one company was able to reduce 700 pounds of batteries that they would have brought into uh, on their patrols. That, to me, is the essence of what we're trying to get at. The military translates energy conserved into lives saved. In Afghanistan, convoys transport energy more than anything else. For every 50 convoys, one Marine is killed or wounded. In the coming months, Congress will decide if energy conservation is the best way to spend $1 billion. For Living on Earth, I'm Ike Sreeskandaraja. Just ahead, life is just a bowl of cherries. We check out the blossoms. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's been nearly a year since the six reactors at Japan's Fukushima nuclear power plant were hit by a devastating earthquake and tsunami tidal waves. Now a new Japanese study reveals that in the confusion that followed, government officials considered evacuating Tokyo. After the Japanese disaster, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission investigated the safety of our reactors. They all passed, but the NRC reports that last year there were 15 significant safety lapses at U.S. nuclear power plants. The Union of Concerned Scientists studied those safety lapses and the NRC's response to them. David Lockbaum, director of the group's nuclear safety project, says while no one was injured, there were some near misses. Near miss is our term for the times when an event or discovery at a U.S. nuclear power plant caused the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to send a team out to understand what happened and why. One other aspect of a near miss is the NRC only sends those teams out when that event or discovery could increase the likelihood of core damage or core meltdown by a factor of 10 or more. And last year, there were 15 near misses. So a near miss is nearly disaster. Well, it's a couple steps down the road that nobody wants to get to the, the destination of. Now, you uh, reviewed these near misses, and uh, you said that at least on three occasions, the NRC did a pretty good job. Yes, the NRC did an extremely good job. The best example would be the Fort Calhoun plant in Nebraska, where the NRC inspectors found that its flooding protection wasn't good enough, made the owner fix those problems, and just a few months later, the Mississippi River flooded and made that plant an island for a short period of time. So the NRC's efforts months earlier made that plant ready for the act of nature it, it experienced. On the other hand, there's some very serious incidents, as, as you say. It's a yin and yang or good and bad. The other side of the coin, the NRC is tolerating some problems. There's roughly half of the fleet of U.S. plants don't meet fire protection regulations about a quarter of the plants have seismic hazards or earthquake hazards greater than they're designed to withstand. So we need to do something about the known safety hazards because they can hurt us someday. Now, when you say they don't meet the fire protection standards, the NRC acknowledges that? Yes, uh, the NRC acknowledges that, that. They have a list of the 47. We use their list. Those owners have made promises and plans to come into compliance sometime over the next decade or so, but 
that pace is good as long as they don't have a fire. It's bad if they ever experience a fire. What about the earthquake risk? You say that uh, there were 27 plants allowed to operate with seismic protection levels that were inadequate? Yeah, the NRC's known that since 1996. Last August, August of 2011, the North Anna nuclear plant in Virginia experienced an earthquake larger than it was designed for. That was on the list that the NRC's known about for two decades that are in that boat. Fortunately, that plant survived an earthquake larger than it was designed for, but we need to reduce our dependence on luck and increase our dependence on skill. Now, one nuclear power company, Entergy, had a particularly bad record last year. Yeah, Entergy had uh, four of the 15 near misses, far more than their fair share. The NRC looked at each of those four individually, but they didn't step back to see if if there's a corporate hand at play in those problems that, you know, is a company not providing enough resources? Do they not establish high enough standards or are they just not following through? But the NRC never asks and answers those questions. So we felt that one, that's one of the things the NRC should do when they see one company having a particularly bad year, connect the dots to see if it's just coincidence or if there's some common theme that's causing those problems to manifest themselves over and over one of the plants that Energy owns actually is not far from where I'm sitting right now. It's uh, the Pilgrim Plow plant just south of Boston. It seems to me from reading your report, they had a very serious incident. They, and, and a similar event at the Millstone plant in Connecticut, were the two near misses that troubled me the most. What happened at Pilgrim was that in April of 2011, they were restarting from a refueling outage. Very common activity that's practiced in control room simulators and done in the plant routinely. That day, for some reason, the operators had a very, very bad day. They increased the power level too much. They corrected that by decreasing the power level too much. They overcorrected again and pulled control rods out and increased the power level too much. They eventually got the reactor to the point where its power level was doubling every 20 seconds. That's a 100-ton mass of nuclear uranium and plutonium that's power level is doubling every 20 seconds. At some point, they tilted the machine, basically, and it automatically shut down. What troubles us about that is it's good that the protective system stepped in and took the operators out of the game and shut the reactor down. But these are the operators who are supposed to protect workers and the public in event of an accident. If they can't walk and chew gum, we're not confident that they're going to be able to run and juggle like they'd need to do to respond as necessary during an accident. Now, the NRC is considering relicensing Pilgrim. It's been operating for 40 years. It wants to go on for another 20 years. Does the NRC consider this incident in reviewing the relicensing application? The NRC reviewed this event separately from that procedure. The NRC was not happy with the performance at Pilgrim. Basically, they used up their get-out-of-jail-free card. If they do anything like that again in the next year or so, they face serious consequences. So they sent the right message based on what happened. And that seems like it got the company's attention. Now, as I understand it, 70 of our nuclear reactors have gotten relicensed for another 20 years. Not a single one has been denied. That is correct. To be fair to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, while they've never denied an application, they have said not yet quite frequently, which then requires the plant owners to go back and do more homework, commit to more measures in order to get the NRC's concurrence at the end of the day. So while they have never denied a petition, they have required plant owners to supplement them extensively to satisfy the NRC. The NRC, I guess, saw your report, and they say there's nothing new here. 
unfortunately, that's true. Those plants have been out of compliance for many, many years. So what would be new would be to have the NRC make those plants comply with the regulations. And, and if so, we'll record that in next year's report. Well, David Lockbaum, thank you so very much. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate it. David Lockbaum is director of the Union of Concerned Scientists Nuclear Safety Project. Last year, we broadcast a story about the installation of solar panels and wind turbines in Palestinian and Bedouin communities on the West Bank. We have an update, but first, this snippet from our original story from reporter Zach Rosen at the village of Tale. This is Jamil Awad. He's 47 years old and has lived in Tale for his entire life. He wears chunky brown work boots and a blue kafiyah on his head. Mm-hmm. He said that with the electricity, they, they, they will have light and they will have khadada, which is the uh, butter churning, electrical butter churning. And he's saying we're going to have television and, uh, and the women can have a better time and they, and they can rest better. Before they had electricity, the women here would spend up to three hours manually churning butter with the skin of a goat. But now they can buy electric butter churners, saving lots of time and energy. Well, since we aired that story, the Israeli government has ordered the village's solar panels and wind turbines be demolished. Israel administers this part of the West Bank and says residents never got construction permits. Elad Orion founded the group that put up the renewable energy systems. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. So did you know that you were building solar and wind turbines in places that it was illegal? Yes. The short answer would be yes. The way the Israeli occupation forces look at it, the whole community is illegal. Although they've been living there well documented at least since the 19th century, so there is no other way for us to have done it. So you couldn't have applied for a permit? No. I mean, we could have applied, but the answer would be no. So how many Palestinians in the West Bank there have you managed to supply with electricity from the solar cells and the wind turbines? About 1,500. So all of these many years, these 1,500 people that you've been providing with renewable power, they didn't have any electricity at all? Before, most of them did not. Some had uh, diesel generators, but mostly they did not have electricity before. Now, the Israeli communities that are there, do they have um, electricity? The Israeli settlements in, in the West Bank are connected to the Israeli grid, um, Moreover, even illegal settlements, so settlements that are illegal by Israeli standards, not by international standards, even these get connected to the Israeli power grid and have, you know, regular electricity. So do you have any legal recourse? Well, you have two populations that live, in some cases, literally meters apart, Palestinians and Israeli citizens. And these two populations are under completely different legal systems. The Israeli settlers, although they are formally outside the state of Israel, are under Israeli civilian law, while the Palestinians, who live on their native land, are under military law. So the Israeli government, the military authority that's in charge of this part of the West Bank, they've issued a demolition order. Do you know when they might carry it out when they might bulldoze the systems? Unless we're able to postpone it, theoretically the bulldozers can come uh, on Monday, 5th of March. 
When the bulldozers come, where will you be? I'll be there, that's for sure. But I, I really do hope that uh, we're not going to go that route. What do the Palestinians think of you when you come to them with this type of news? I cannot speak on behalf of all Palestinians, but there is great fear, I mean, in these communities. Can you imagine living without electricity? Ilad Orion is the founder of the group Community Energy and Technology in the Middle East. It installed the renewable energy systems in the West Bank. Israeli anthropologist Shuli Hartman has been living and working in the villages that got the solar panels and wind turbines. Let me tell you something. I was there, you know, a few weeks ago, and an elderly man, and, and there was, you know, someone from, uh, from one of the, the media, and he asked me to ask this man, what kind of change did electricity make to your life? And he said it was like giving water to a sick man. Before they had the electricity, it's one thing, but after they have it, to take it from them, it's going to be very, very hard. You must realize that these people are very poor and they are just living on the survival sort of level. So first of all, saving money, but then in terms of work, daily work, and especially for the women, work that has taken hours has become so much easier. They used to sit for two hours washing and now they work with a machine and they can do some other things at the same time. So these labor-saving devices have changed women and, and their ability to do work. Has it affected their roles in the family? Look, it's too short a time. You don't see a dramatic changes. But what you do see is that they have more time to be with the children. And in the morning, the women are cleaning, yes? But as they are cleaning, they are using radio. And sometimes they hear the Quran, or sometimes they hear music, or sometimes they hear some kind of a program, and they are connected to the world. I want to, to give you just two other points. Some of the herds are herded by 14, 13, 15 years old, year old children. These children, that when they tell, they tell us that they are not interested in studies and so on, when they followed the whole process of installing this uh, clean electricity, and they took part in it because they helped, you know, they became really interested in the process. They began to ask me, you know, whether they can get some books to understand how it works. So it's like reopening again the mind of children that already sort of gave up on, on these kind of things. You know, I hope people will, will realize how important this is for this community. Israeli social anthropologist Shuli Hartman. We asked the Israeli government about the demolition order. Yagal Palmour from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs says the solar panels and wind turbines went up without permits. And he adds, had the West Bank villages applied for the permits, they probably would have gotten them. The government of Germany, which paid for the systems, has complained to Israel's prime minister. And as of now, the demolition order is suspended. The cherry trees in Washington, D.C. will soon be busting out all over. It was a hundred years ago, back in 1912, that Japan gave the U.S. a small forest worth of cherry trees, a gift from the people of Japan to America. 
The cherry trees were planted along the tidal basin in the nation's capital, and their pink and white flowers are a sure sign that spring has sprung. During the 100th anniversary National Cherry Blossom Festival later this month, more than a million people will stop and smell the flowers and take in the intoxicating sight. For a bit more on the history and perspective, we turn to Margaret Pooler. She's a plant geneticist with the National Arboretum. Margaret, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So, a hundred years. Congratulations. Yeah, pretty amazing, huh? Yeah, it's incredible. Wh- whose idea was it to plant the trees in the first place? Well, it, w- it was kind of a team effort, I think. I give a lot of credit to a USDA employee, David Fairchild, who sort of introduced flowering cherries to the U.S., but really it was First Lady Helen Taft who made it actually happen, who had this vision of transforming Potomac Park into a field of cherries. And the Japanese donated the trees? Definitely, yep. How many trees are there today? Well, the original gift was over 3,000 trees, and so there's more than that now. Are there any of the original trees that were planted way back in 1912? Yes, there are. Believe it or not, there are some original trees that are now celebrating their 100th anniversary of being planted there. I was reading that after Pearl Harbor, when we went to war with Japan, four of the trees were cut down. Well, I guess, you know, that's because they were sort of associated with Japan. I think it's kind of interesting how that has evolved and that now, you know, we have all kinds of changes in Washington all the time, but those cherry trees are sort of just this constant. I think people have sort of come to depend on their predictability. Well, how predictable are the uh, buddings and blossomings of of the cherry trees? Well, I think, you know, we know they're going to bloom. I know a lot of people have talked, especially this year, because we've had such a warm winter and spring. So people are wondering, you know, what's going to happen to these trees? Is is this going to have an impact on them? But interestingly, although we're kind of confused by the spring, the trees really are not going to really be affected by it, other than probably blooming a little earlier than usual. So the fact that this was the fourth warmest February on record won't confuse the trees. It doesn't confuse the trees, believe it or not, because what happens is the trees during the winter, they actually go dormant. But then in the spring, the sap starts to move and the buds start to swell and color up. And that's already going on right now. So really, they just respond to day length and temperature and are going to bloom no matter what. What's the earliest? Do you know that they started blooming? I think the earliest on record for peak bloom was March 15th. So how long do the blossoms stay? Um, The blooms can last anywhere from a week to two weeks, and it depends a lot on the weather. Like if we get a lot of rain and wind, they're going to last a lot less time. So do you go out and walk uh, the tidal basin when when they're coming up? I do. I try to get down there to see the cherry blossoms. It's very crowded, though, especially, you know, at the peak of the bloom. Um, But yeah, I think it's definitely worthwhile seeing. I know when the blooms come off, it looks like this gentle snowfall. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. I'm kind of lucky, though, at the Arboretum, we also have our own collection of cherries, and they're different than the Tidal Basin because instead of being mostly one type, we have so many different um, species and cultivars. We get a longer bloom time. It usually lasts for about a month, and it's so many different colors and sizes and shapes and forms, so it's, it's beautiful but in a different way than the Tidal Basin. How many different um, types of cherry trees are there around the Tidal Basin? Around the Tidal Basin, um, there's probably two or three prominent varieties, and that's the Yoshino 
um, which is what sort of everyone associates with it. There's also Kwanzan, which has double flowers. And then um, there's one called Prunus tacosimensis. Do you have a favorite? Um, my favorite is Prunus sargentii, the sergeant cherry. Why is that? Well, I like it because it's um, pretty hardy. It's vigorous. It has really beautiful single pink flowers. That's the one I like. Now, these are cherry trees, but uh, no fruit, no cherry. Right. Well, actually, they do. The Yoshino trees around the tidal basin do actually set fruit, but you don't see that many fruit um, because the birds usually take care of it before it even drops to the ground. So, Margaret Pooler, how are you going to commemorate the 100th um, anniversary of the cherry trees? Well, um, at the Arboretum, we're going to be doing pollinations to try to create, develop new varieties of flowering cherry trees by making crosses with different species. And what happens to them? Those we then test and hopefully release as new cultivars so that we can sort of broaden the genetic base of the flowering cherry trees that are planted in the U.S. Can people buy them? They can. Once we release a plant, it goes out to nursery propagators and producers who then sell it um, via their retailers. Well, Margaret Pooler, thank you so very much. You're welcome. Glad to talk to you. Margaret Pooler is a research geneticist with the National Arboretum. And Margaret, happy spring. Thank you. You too. And this just in, according to the National Park's official blossom predictor, peak bloom will be from March 24th. Coming up, songs to save the forests of Madagascar. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Getting around these days is easy to do. Just tap your destination on the old GPS and you're good to go. Migratory birds, on the other hand, have other ways of finding their way, as Bird Notes' Michael Stein reports. How do birds navigate? They steer by landmarks and by the sun and stars. A keen sense of smell helps some birds chart their course. And it turns out migrating birds also find their way by responding to the magnetic field of the Earth. These bobolinks we're hearing orient themselves to Earth's magnetic north with the help of iron-rich magnetic crystals inside their upper beaks. Homing pigeons also carry these magnetoreceptors, as do robins and other birds. But that's not the only way birds use the Earth's magnetic field to help them on their way. Light hitting a specific protein in a bird's eye may trigger a chemical reaction that varies depending on the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. And birds may actually see Earth's magnetic field in the form of changing dark areas across one eye. This sensitivity explains why night-flying birds need to recalibrate their magnetic sense every day by the light of the setting sun. 
In an experiment in central Illinois, 18 thrushes were fitted with radio transmitters and exposed to a misaligned magnetic field. When released after dark, the birds headed west. Birds not exposed to the false geomagnetic field headed north. On subsequent days, however, the misdirected birds reoriented themselves to follow their true course. I'm Michael Stein. To see some Bobolink photos, point your compass to our website, LOE.org. Salmon eggs hatch in rivers, and then the fish spend a good part of their lives in the open ocean bulking up and swimming in schools before making the trip back upstream to spawn. But for some small fries in Seattle, there's another step in the schooling process when they get a real education and give one as well. Producer Ashley Hearn of the public media collaborative EarthFix has our report. The students at Viewlands Elementary School in northwest Seattle have some interesting guests this winter. Uh, I like coming down here because it's kind of fun to see how much they've grown every day. Gabby Larson is in fifth grade. She and her classmate Mihaela Mrozik are standing in front of an aquarium in the hallway of their school. At the bottom of the tank, round red salmon eggs clump and cluster together. Soon these eggs will hatch. Mihaela describes what happened last year. It was really cool because when they first hatch, they still look like the egg except for their head and tail are out because they still have the sack and they use the food inside of it for their first week or two. And then it finally goes away and then they start actually looking like fish. Viewlands Elementary School is one of about 500 schools in Washington involved with the Salmon in Schools program. The program lost state funding last year, but Seattle Public Utilities came up with the money to keep it afloat in 2012. The eggs in this tank were donated by the Suquamish tribe. Now, Mahela and Gabby test the water temperature every day to make sure it's a salmon-friendly 45 degrees. It's a big responsibility, but in the process, they're learning. Well, they're kind of interesting, the way that they go through their um, life cycle. And um, the salmon, they can go through sea and stuff like that, and then they come back and they lay their eggs exactly where they were born. I think it's because, maybe because they want their child to grow up to be like them. Mahela explains that she and Gabby will watch over the hatchlings until they're about two inches long. Because that's when they're big enough to start heading down towards the ocean for the first time. So we'll release them when all the other salmon children are also going. That way they'll be with other salmon and they'll go into the ocean and then they'll come back. Water comes down. Bill Hagen is a salmon steward at Carkeek Park, right around the corner from Viewlands Elementary. He's standing next to a large tank where Gabby and Mahela's juvenile salmon will be held before he releases them into the nearby creek. Salmon survival rates in urban streams in Puget Sound are low. In some places, 80% of them die before spawning. Hagen says the salmon that are hatched in schools like Viewlands are not a solution to that problem. I see this program as an educational program. Some say it's a stock supplement, but it really, you know, the amount of fish we get back isn't going to build a big stock here. Only a handful of those eggs from Viewlands will survive to adulthood once they're released. Let's walk this way here. 
Most weekends, you'll find Hagen walking along Piper's Creek here in Carkeek Park. As a salmon steward, his job is to educate visitors about these fish. I was talking to this group of people at the viewpoint here, and I got into my spiel a little bit, and all of a sudden this eight, nine-year-old girl standing alongside me with her mother, she just stepped right in and finished the whole process. And I looked at her, and her mother looked at her, and her mother said, where'd you get that? So remember that in school? We had all those fish in school? But she learned that, and she remembered it coming back. And her mother was as surprised as I was. <laughs> Next year, Gabby and Mahala will leave elementary school and head into the open waters of middle school. Gabby says, who knows? Maybe they'll see these salmon again someday. Maybe when we're in, like, seventh grade, we're going to go, hey, that's that salmon that we raised in fifth grade. You wouldn't really know how to tell, though, so you could be pointing at some random salmon and then say, I raised that salmon. (laughs) I'm Ashley Ahern in Seattle. Our story on salmon in schools comes to us from the public media collaborative EarthFix. miles off the southeast coast of Africa is Madagascar. It's the fourth largest island in the world, smaller than Texas, but larger than California. 70% of the plants on Madagascar and 80% of the animals are found no place else on Earth. It's biologically rich because it's remote and has a wide diversity of forest habitats. But the island nation is economically impoverished and the forest resources are rapidly being removed. In just 20 years, Malagasy forests equal to the size of Connecticut have been cut down. Musician Razia Saeed is from Madagascar. She's recorded a CD about the destruction of the forests in her homeland. It's called Zebu Nation. The Zebu is um, a cattle that is very common in Madagascar and means a lot of things for Malagasy people. The Zebu represents the connection between the world of the living and the world of the dead. We eat the zebu as well. It's uh, the daily meat of Madagascar. So it, uh, it has a lot of different layers of meanings. Well, your album is, is basically an impassioned um, plea for preserving the forest of Madagascar. I realized that there was not much that was known about that. I decided to do something about it. So I decided to write about this uh, environmental, you know, disaster we're going through in Madagascar. One day in May, it was a beautiful day. I felt so alone when the sky opened up and changed to charcoal gray. One thing that is going on is slash and burn agriculture. You know, people are burning the forest in order to fertilize the soil. But at the end, after three crops, the soil is totally uh, impoverished from its uh, nutrients. At the end, it becomes just some soil that is eroded. It's a huge, huge problem in Madagascar because this is something that people have been doing for generations. Slash and burn. Slash and burn. There's also the big problem of poverty. We are, um, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world. So it's very difficult to make people understand something when they have to figure a way to live on a daily basis and how they're going to feed their children the next day. On the mountainside, stand. 
Some of your your trees are worth huge amounts of money. You've got uh, ebony and rosewood. These are very exotic and very expensive trees. Yes, very expensive once it comes out of Madagascar, but actually people are getting it for pretty cheap from Madagascar. So this is this is the other layer of the big problem in Madagascar, which is illegal logging. They've cut everything that was outside of national parks and uh, they're going into national parks. You know, can you imagine if people go to Yellowstone and get in the park and just started cutting trees? People would be totally like outraged here in the States, I'm sure. And in Madagascar, I'm trying to, you know, make people realize that these trees are worth much more than whatever they're getting. But again, you know, you're facing the same problem, which is they think about what's happening today and tomorrow, but they're not thinking about much more than that. Is that the reason you wrote the, and sang the song on your album, the, the Mifo Haza? Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, Mifo Haza, Mifo Haza, which means wake up. is what this song is about you know let's stop cutting the wood because this wood actually this forest could bring so much more to Madagascar because Madagascar is known for its biodiversity and for its you know for its beautiful endemic species and if we cut these trees we'll, we'll have no more animals living in them we'll have no more trees we'll just become a desert. All of your songs have been translated in English in the liner notes and uh, it says don't let anyone pretend to have the right to use them to fulfill their own greed. Yes, absolutely. Who are you talking about? Specifically now, this case of uh, Gibson, you know, about the illegal wood. and uh, But it's not just Gibson. It's, uh, Gibson guitar. We, there's, uh, yes, Gibson guitar. We have a lot of wood that's been uh, exported to China and uh, turned into furniture. And a lot of people are making a lot of money from this wood. And the people in Madagascar are not seeing really much money from this wood. They're getting paid $2.50 a day to, to go get some wood in the middle of national parks that they're dragging, you know, through miles and miles uh, to get them to some port where they leave Madagascar illegally. It's horrible. We should say, though, that Gibson Qatar Company has said they deny the allegations that they have anything to do with the illegal logging. We have a video of a concert of, of some Malagasy musicians who held a, a, a concert there in, in support of the rainforest. Yes, this is what I did in uh, October. I organized this concert. It was next to the National Park of Maswala. People have been going into that park and cutting some trees. The concert attracted about 10,000 people. It felt like... It was not right to cut that forest. They showed us some wells and started saying, can you believe there was no more water in the wells? There were cobwebs. We're trying to explain to them, you know, when you don't have any more forest, this is what happened. It just dries up. This is a region where I come from that is on the northeast of Madagascar. When I grew up, I used to walk along that park because my grandfather was doing some agriculture, some coffee, some cloves in that area. So it's something that is really, really close to me. And um, when I went there, no, I'm getting emotional talking about all of this. Um, when I went there a year ago, 
And I started speaking to people, introducing myself, and they remembered my grandfather because, you know, he's gone since. And they said, oh, my God, you're the granddaughter of, uh, of this person. And they said, please do something to help us. Do something to help us. I wanted to ask you about your um, song, Nai Alatsika. Do I have that correct? Nialantika. Nialantika. What does that mean? It's nature's lament, you know, what's happening to our nature. And if we're not careful, you know, we're not going to have anything left for future generations. Nature is uh, begging for help. Can you sing it there? I know that we're not set up to do this, but I just want to hear you sing it. <laughs> well, I don't have any instrument around here, but uh, okay. Laka laka ni fiyenanga Etambu ni tani Ni tuntulu ye fatiyenanga Kamalama pitumani Ireu zavapuare I think that there is something to be done and we need to do it fast. You know, Malagasy people cannot do it on their own and I will not say it enough. We really need your help. Boy, Razia, thank you so very much. Thank you. Razia Said Sidi is Zebu Nation. Some of the profits from sales go to reforesting Madagascar. Our website has more information, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Jessica Elise Kern, Ingrid Lobet, and Helen Palmer. With help from Sarah Calkins, Megan Minor, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Mary Bates and Sophie Golden. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's just one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Go Forward Fund 
and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.